Blackburn. Captain Tim Payne was 38 not out, all-rounder Cameron Green on 28. The series is tied one all after a drawn third test in Sydney. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to the Week on 3 with me, Noreen Mir. Apart from a cold week here in Hong Kong, here at Radio 3, we've been keeping up a wide variety of programs for you, from current affairs to music features and also matters to do with sustainability and the environment. If you have missed hearing some of the programs and interviews during the week, well, here's the program for you. I have specially selected some interviews which are definitely worth a second and a third hearing. That's not to say that the others aren't worthy, but I only have 30 minutes of this program and I think I've spent about a minute just waffling. <laughs> just kidding. But without further ado, let's get right into it. On Monday's 123 show, we started the week with our environmental feature, Trash Talk. And this week, Marcy Trentlong talked to Ian Brownlee from the Hong Kong Yacht Club Sustainability Committee, who tells us what's been the driving force for a group of sailors and rowers to clean up our oceans. One of the things that's been a bit of a driver in the last two years is the uh, climate change impact. And um, a typhoon mangrove. Um, basically demolished um, most of our, our craft that we've got at Middle Island, which is our main training center. The sailboats. The, yeah, the sailboats, the rowing boats, the outrigger canoes. Um, basically, we lost about five fleets of boats, and the total value was about in excess of $9 million. And so um, that had a re really big impact on people realizing that there is something that needs to be done, um, not, not only to protect our our assets and our boats and and to enable us to continue to use them and to have events but also just generally there's a need to look after you know the world that we live in and and i think from that point of view there's there's actually a better understanding of what we have to do mm. and people are looking at what can we do and so the club now is in a situation where um we have an incredible um feeling of responsibility and a need to do something amongst the members generally. Yeah. And that they accept that there is some responsibility towards the ocean and that. So one of the things that we've found is that if you can put all this enthusiasm into some sort of structure or, um, or a protocol, and this applies to all sorts of things, um, then people will follow it. They, they get some guidance as to where they could put their energy and their interests. And, and part of that was this... Um, program that's uh, run by uh, it's an international program run out of um, the U USA it's called Sailors for the Sea and it's a website um, based program where they have a systematic approach to what you should do to make your regatta um, environmentally friendly, environmentally acceptable and at the same time look after the harbour, the water that you're sailing in. Yeah, so they actually give you a checklist or something, right, which makes it easier. But, but, but some of these things are challenging, and there's different levels. There's participant, platinum, and over the years, the Yacht Club has gotten up to a gold standard, which is one below platinum, which is yeah. super difficult to do. It's, um, it's, it's actually really interesting to look at the way you can do the program, because 
there are some things which relate to the venue that you're operating from. And so we've got three venues at Caledonia, Middle Island, and at Shelter Cove and Sai Kung. And, and part of the program has been to actually bring our venues up to a level whereby we can generally get to the gold level. And, and that's by doing things like, like just simple things like having the proper bins there. Um, obviously, the other thing is to eliminate single-use plastics, which, which we've done anyway. So we get lots of ticks for those things using recyclables and things like that. And, and then we have to have a green team, which is basically, they're not really the police that look after it, but they're the enthusiastics who guide all the other members who are taking part. They're probably not competing in the event, but they're actually part of the management process of the event as you have a green team. And they make sure that they go through a checklist of things that are at the venue and that people are doing uh, to make this qualify for the various um, criteria that we have to meet. And so what happens is we can relatively easily get our, our sites up to that level, and that means that we can constantly tick the right boxes there. Then there are the ones that relate to the actual operation of the, of the competition, and that's where we have a little bit of flexibility and variability, and we have to make sure that we're doing the right things at the right times. For instance, a simple one is to ensure that it's, it's a paperless event. And, and we've, we've no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a paperless event. And now it's all done um, basically on, on phones and that people get all the, the briefing documents and everything on the phones. And so there are no, um, no handouts like we've had for years. And, and this simple thing has reduced um, you know, the wa waste of paper and so on. So, and it's actually more convenient now. You have a pick-up plastic campaign as well. Uh, at the Yacht Club too. Yes, this pick-up plastic is, um, is taking the plastic one step further. Instead of stopping the use of single-use plastic, we're now getting the situation where whenever we go out on the water, you see plastic in the water. And as people that are on the water in boats, uh, we have an opportunity to remove that plastic as we see it. And we're building up a program where uh, the pick-up plastic one is if you're, for instance, the first starting point is if you're at a pontoon and you see plastic floating in the water, don't just say, oh, what a pity. Uh, take some responsibility. We're providing nets so that people can scoop that plastic out of the water, put it in a bin, and then it becomes a different problem. It's a, it's a recyclable problem, but it's gone from the water. And, and plastic in the water is probably the biggest problem. And for any people that are out in boats or in swimming in the water, um, if you see that plastic, there's an opportunity for you to do something to remove it because it'll just degenerate and become nanoplastics and get in the and food chain and everything. Yeah, and into our fish. So, so, so that's that's a, the new initiative which we're going to develop in the in the coming year. Oh, that's And it's great. not only for the club; it's for anyone who any organisation which has boats, and we hope to spread it through the Water Sports Council here to uh, canoe all the canoes, the dragon boats and the other sports that go out onto the water. So it becomes uh, our initiative, but it's for everyone else to do. And just imagine all of the people that go out in boats, whether they even be on motorboats, if you're out on the water in Hong Kong and you see the plastic, pick it up. Pick it up. So it applies to everyone, and our playground is so big that we have to do something to keep it uh, nice for us to play at. You know? We don't want to just rely on picking it up on the beaches because a lot of it never gets to a beach. And that was Trash Talk on Monday's 123 show. 
One news item that I've seen circulating the most amongst my Hong Kong friends and also overseas Hong Kong friends, and I have to admit, I was kind of surprised to see how many people sharing this and how many different kinds of people sharing this. The news I'm referring to is the death of Melvis, a Hong Kong institution, particularly in the bar areas of Lang Kui Fong and Wan Chai. Social media has seen an outpouring of memories and tributes to Hong Kong's Elvis, who would walk around most evenings in his costume in honor of the king. His black hair with a quiff, a guitar on his back. The local branch of the International Elvis Fan Club confirmed that Kwok Lam Sang passed away at the end of December. Radio 3's Anne Marie Evans remembers the life of Melvis Kwok on Wednesday's News Wrap. Roll. Elvis Presley died in 1977, which is when Hong Kong Melvis first heard his music and fell in love with all things Graceland's. Melvis, or Kwok Lam Sang, came as a child from Indonesia to Guizhou province before moving to Hong Kong, where his day job was as a postal worker. But Elvis Presley was his passion as he toured the pubs and clubs and was a regular part of the city's nightlife. He wasn't the best Elvis impersonator. There are plenty better here, but it was more about his character, as he strummed a few bars of blue suede shoes or Heartbreak Hotel. Helen Ma is the president of the International Elvis Presley Fan Club Hong Kong, which has been an institution here since 1968. I got to know Melvis because he came to join our fan club in the early 80s, and we found he was very devoted. I was fan. Yes, and what did you think about the way that he entertained in the bar districts? Melvis, he only knew Elvis after Elvis' death in 1977. He fell in love with Elvis' music, and he started practicing his song by himself. And he often, once in a while, or often performed in our fan club's events. And he also dressed up like Elvis' jumpsuit costume. And he was quite memorable for all our members. Everybody know he got himself a famous nickname, Lan Gui Fong, Elvis Lan Gui Fong Mao. You know, yeah. Local journalist John Carney works for the South China Morning Post and interviewed Melvis last year. We, we met him and, and did a circuit with him. He does a, he, the circuit he does seven days a week, or he was doing seven days a week then. We met him at TST Ferry, uh, and we got the ferry across with him. We did the whole circuit, uh, myself and a, a guy doing the video uh, from from the office, and we did a video and a feature on him. And he, he just came across as if he actually came across as a guy very different from his persona as Melvis when he was in the, the, the bars. He's he was very mild mannered and just a nice a nice person. Um, of course, the thing, one of the things that most people would say about him is that when he does get into the bar, not only does he put on a good show, he isn't the best guitarist. He probably knows a bit two chords, 
and, um, <laughs> Two chords. And around about, <laughs> and maybe, you know, it seems that way, but and he doesn't seem to know a great deal of the words, but I mean, that, that was part of his charm, because you didn't expect to have this great Elvis impersonator, it was just someone... It was more the fact that it was him, and that everyone at one stage or another wanted to be seen having a sing-along with him, even whether you liked Elvis or not. It's only when someone is gone that they're really missed. I think the sad thing is that you won't see him walking around these areas again, and that's sort of a... He's such an iconic person that it just won't be the same that he's not there anymore. Elvis has left the building. Yes, Melvis has left the building and leaving behind many great memories for all of us who always enjoyed bumping into him and seeing his good mood and kind smile and, of course, his unforgettable moves. Thanks, Anne-Marie, for your feature on Wednesday's News Wrap. Right, let's turn to the next bit of today's program. Now, the weather has certainly been a big topic here in Hong Kong in the last few days. And while many of us have had the security and chance of staying warm indoors at home, there are many homeless people who are not so fortunate. On Wednesday's back chat, Hugh Chiverton and Anna Fenton talked to Ng Wai Tung, a community organizer from the Society for Community Organization, and also Jeff Rotemeyer, the founder of Impact Hong Kong, about this group of people who have been hard hit by the pandemic and now the cold weather. Jeff tells us the situation that homeless people are facing right now in the streets of Hong Kong. It's quite scary on the streets what we're seeing. You know, it's, it's freezing cold. Uh, even for us living in these apartments in Hong Kong and outside, individuals are struggling really with nowhere to go. Um, as a charity, we're outside each and every day in multiple locations. We, we serve the homeless in, in uh, 11 different locations uh, every single night. Um, and, you know, we're just trying to get out there and reach them. But it is difficult because there aren't a lot of good options and there are many individuals that we just cannot find. Now, uh, Jeff, um, I think you'd agree that the government has a fairly, um, well, um, odd attitude to this, right? I mean, I've been out with you before and you showed me the, I think it was the Namchong District Community Centre, which is about 20 metres from a park called the Tung Chow Street Park, where the homeless would prefer to be in the park than in the government's hostel. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, and yeah, it is. It is amazing. It's right there. Um, now that community center is—it's an emergency shelter, so it's really barely ever open. Um, and even when it is, how the many beds? That, Just because there's a lot, isn't there in there? How many well, beds? Pardon me. How many beds in there? I'm I'm told there are roughly a hundred. Right. So it's a pretty big space. You know, it's used during the day for different various activities, but then in the evening, uh, quite late, it would be opened up and the homeless would be able to go there. Um, but even even when it is open, the homeless that are just meters away will not go there because it's really not a, it's just not a well-run organization there. You know, it's not a caring place. It's not an inviting place. In fact, people that are going there are kind of treated like an inconvenience and they just don't go. Um, and it's quite sad that it's very rarely open. And even during the summer months, when there's a hot weather warning, it will actually most of the most of the occupants that will go there will pe be people that live in the public housing estate nearby. You know, trying to save money on air conditioning. So it's just really kind of a failed, just a real failed policy. And do we see this all all around town? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, in Waitung, uh, you'll definitely know more about how many there are, but I think there's probably roughly about 8 to 11 uh, emergency shelters throughout Hong Kong. Um, and I think it's probably the same case uh, in all of them. Right. Now, who in government is the responsible, accountable department for this? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. You do have a lot of... Uh, you have a lot of overlapping departments, and probably nobody wants to take, you know, responsibility for it. I think it'd be home, you know, something in the home affairs uh, department on that. But it could be social welfare. I'm, I'm really not sure, to be honest. And why too? Do you know? Yes, in very know that um, in Hong Kong there's a low homeless policy for the homeless people. So you just ask the question: Is which uh, department is responsible? Which one? What is the responsibility to the homeless people? In fact, we ask for the home affairs department and also ask for the social affairs department. Which department should have the homeless policy? And they said they have no this policy, so they do not take the whole responsibility. But as you know, we mentioned in this uh, cold weather, only when uh, when the temperature is under. 13 degree. Um, the government opened the shelter. So tomorrow, maybe the shelter will open. And homeless people will thinking uh, if they go into the shelter tonight, maybe they cannot go into tomorrow. You know that uh, Hong Kong has recorded at least 11 deaths over the uh, weekend uh, with, the, uh, with the cold weather warning. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, the causes of the deaths are not confirmed, but they are suspected to be related to the cold temperatures. Is this, uh, are these cold, is this cold weather actually killing people in Hong Kong? Well, um, of course, we are quite disappointed with uh, this situation. Are we thinking... Um, if the government are willing to open the temporary shelter, they should open uh, in a longer period. For example, uh, start from last um, February, we asked the government if for this, you know, now the Hong Kong facing the virus situation, we asked the government to open the shelter every night, but uh, they said they have no such policy. They said only when the temperature it's under 13 degree, or it's a too hot temperature, or it's a the typhoon signal number eight. They only open at that moment, at that light. So we hope the government can uh, have more shelter and open in a longer, longer period. Maybe at least they open for 10 days, or uh, can open under this uh, virus, serious virus situation. Do, when they open the shelters, like in cold weather, do people use them? Do people go to them? I think over half homeless people do not go into the shelter. There are some reasons. First is, there's uncertainty. If they go inside the line, if the shelter closes tomorrow, they will close at 8 a.m. tomorrow. So the home affairs department, the staff will uh, wake you up at 7 a.m. So it's too early and uh, it's very cold. And second is, um, you know, some people are very weak and elderly. If they move into the shelter, they will bring their buildings or they will lose their buildings in their homeless, uh, I mean, 
at a homeless place. Then, uh, and first is uh, they face some security problem. Is uh, they claim that they will lost something in the shelter. Uh, you know, they have some mobile phone or wallet. They already lost in the shelter, and even they lost their shelter. Uh, even they maybe call the police, but it's difficult for them to find back their belongings or their telephone. So they will find some this uncertainty uh, issue, not to go inside the shelter. So Wai Tung, what assistance does the government uh, give to homeless people? Well, in Hong Kong, um, there's four origin teams provided by the government. Includes Togo. Uh, Togo is one of the outreaching team we go outreaching service to for every week for at least two to three times. But uh, of course, the government provides shelter. But uh, for the supplied shelter, uh, there's uh, only how to say in 2013 there's only 202 bed space for the supplied. Uh, uh, shelter, and uh, I mean the Sovereign Hostel. And uh, from 2013 to 2020, they only uh, increased uh, 20 passages. So its total now is only uh, 222 uh, passages for the homeless people. But uh, if you want to move in the, the uh, also provided by the government subvention, uh, they need to wait for at least two to three months. So now the shelter is uh, not enough from the government. In fact, Togo already have, uh, have another 24 bed space, but it, uh, now it's uh, fully occupied. So we hope the government can build more shelter for the homeless people. Jeff Rottmeyer, what about also distributing warm clothes? Uh, can you do that? Is that being done? Yes. Yeah, we have a we have a great community with Impact HK. So we have a really you know strong support team, uh, a community that care about the homeless and are thinking about them. We've received a lot of uh, you know Christmas care packages, sleeping bags, clothing. We're we're on the streets distributing warmth every night. Um, I'd like to touch a little bit on you know why these shelters don't work. It's because you can't um, you can't cure or solve this homeless issue with housing. Um, and even if the government do provide more shelters, more, you know, temporary shelters, it's just not going to work because the individuals outside, they need a lot more than shelter. And that's what we're trying to do as a charity is to provide them with a real holistic program, not with just counseling and mentorship, but also, you know, housing, employment, um, sport, art, community. Um, and that's why it works. And that was Wednesday's Back Chat. On Thursday's Common Room, Alison Howe talks to American singer-songwriter Fletcher about her journey to self-discovery. I think finding yourself is just like a journey that lasts a lifetime, you know? And I think the Finding Fletcher EP was my sort of first discovery with it. And I moved moved away from home and I went to college um, in New York City. And it was really there that I felt like I was able to explore myself, like including my sexuality and my identity and who I was and who I was outside of the confinement of like a really small-minded town where I grew up from, where if you just weren't anything other than a stereotypical 
uh, version of what everyone just thought you were supposed to be, then every, you were weird and you were different. And um, I finally was like, no, I, I, I want to know who I am and I want to know who I am like without um, being away from like this space and being in New York City and getting to discover myself. And it's just, I mean, there is such a magic to it. It's like, I, I fell in love for the first time in that city. I got my heart broken for the first time in that city. I've like lost myself, found myself, lost myself again. I fell in love there again. And for a while, the city was like ruined for me, you know, cause I was, you associate like a place with the person and bars and restaurants and foods and street corners. And I, um, you know, it definitely, uh, I definitely think in terms of me finding myself, it's a journey though that like lasts forever. Like I'm still finding myself right now. I'm still rediscovering who I am and really discovering who I am for the first time without anybody else, which is just like a whole other journey in and of itself that I'm that I'm currently on. So I'm uh, no, I'm not found. I'm still finding. I don't know what I don't know if I'll ever be found. Um, I feel like the moment you stop learning and you stop growing, then um, then you you aren't alive anymore. That's so well said. What were, what kind of student were you like in college? Um, I was a pretty I was like pretty nerdy, honestly. Like I was pretty nerdy in terms of like throughout school. Always, I was like pretty quiet. Um, pretty awkward and then I went to in college I was just like I did okay I definitely like I definitely cheated on a couple tests uh, <laughs> I definitely like didn't show up to classes sometimes but I like you know I got I got through it I did what I had to do like my French cinema class I literally like slept through every single film that ever and we would get quizzed on it I'm like I have no idea what we're talking about um, so could have could have used some improvement in some areas. I just I don't want to go back to school. That's for sure. I don't do well with like homework and and essay writing because my attention span is literally a goldfish. And that was Thursday's common room. And finally, it's time for me to say goodbye to you and leave you in the great hands of funny man Steve James with a special edition of the best of Steve James this week on Radio 3. I'll be back again next week at the same time at 8.30. So bye-bye and sayonara. And now, a serious breach of social decorum. Do I know you? Radio 3 presents Steve James. I say we judge him by what he does next. In other news, researchers say that the keypads on uh, ATMs are just as dirty as public restrooms. They tested them. To remind us to wash our hands after using an ATM, they should put the, the sound of a toilet should be played as the cash comes out. A report in the Daily Mail, um, which appears to be in America. Does America have a Daily Mail? Uh, it says that conservative news sites are more likely to spy on their readers with 73% more cookies and hidden tracking tools. Yeah, it is in America, so they say cookies. Foxnews.com ranked 17th in original reporting, but first in spying on scared white people. A man in Poland had to be rescued by the fire department after becoming wedged inside a washing machine whilst playing hide-and-seek with his children. The rescuers got there just before the kids managed to negotiate an allowance increase in exchange for them not starting the spin cycle. This day, 1958, the release date for the Elvis Presley single, Jailhouse Rock, was put back a week. This is because Decca Records 
the pressing plant in the UK, were unable to meet the advance orders of 250,000 copies. Some of the characters named in Jailhouse Rock are real people. Shifty Henry was well known, a well-known L.A. musician, uh, not a criminal. The Purple Gang that's mentioned in the song was a real mob. And Sad Sack was a U.S. Army nickname in World War II for a loser. Purple 